0: and welcome to the Dunker Punks podcast. Have you been following the Standing Rock story? Did you wonder how we got to a place where the government of the United States and the Sioux Nation were at odds? Or maybe we should say at odds again. Well, stay tuned to learn more about this story and the protest.
1: I don't want to be rich. Don't want to be popular. Don't want to be selfish. No. Wanna be a goat? Don't wanna be ignorant. Don't wanna be blindfolded. I just wanna be countercultural. I don't wanna be violent. Don't wanna have a vendetta. Don't wanna be vengeful, no. I don't wanna be a soldier, don't wanna be militaristic, don't wanna help that cycle, I just wanna be a countercultural pacifist. I don't wanna be a racist, don't wanna be a capitalist, don't wanna be a sexist, no. I don't wanna pass judgment, don't wanna hold grudges. Wanna be hateful, I just wanna be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't wanna shop at Walmart, don't wanna grow Monsanto, don't wanna drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't wanna burn petrol, don't wanna eat perfect fruit, don't wanna feel guilty, I just wanna be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I wanna be authentic, I wanna be radical, I wanna be optimistic, honest, beautiful, I wanna be humble, I wanna be. I want to be open, like inspiration I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao. I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr. Like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Colimbs, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ But mostly, I just want to be me
0: Just wanna be me. Today, Emmy Goring interviews Joel West Williams, an attorney with the Native Rights Fund. He'll give us some background on how we got to this place of disagreement. I had wondered how we actually conquered Native land. It's very interesting to hear him tell of the courtroom battles that secured much of the Native territory called Indian land which was secured for our nation, although it was land that Native tribes believed no one could own. So settle in for a very interesting backstory, and then stay tuned for an update by Joel, since the Army Corps of Engineers have denied a permit for the pipeline for the Standing Rock Route. (laughs)
2: Hey Joel, so thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Joel is a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, and he's also the staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund. So I'll let him go ahead and say a little bit more about himself.
3: Hi Emmy, well uh, thanks for thanks for having me on. And um, uh, yeah, as you said, I'm a uh, uh, citizen of Cherokee Nation, and I'm a staff attorney at the Native American Rights Fund, um, and I practice federal Indian law here, and and uh, part of our our work at NARF, um, uh, for nearly fifty years now um, uh, significantly re- relates to uh, to native lands, uh, sacred sites and, and religious practices um, and tribal sovereignty um, as well and um, so I'm, you know i 'm not here as a spokesperson for uh, for my tribe or, or for uh, Native American rights fund, um, but certainly uh, those experiences and, and uh, the, the knowledge as a as an Indian law practitioner, you know, will inform uh, what I have to say here.
2: Well, thank you so much. Um, where does the concept of land omer- ownership come from, and how has that evolved?
3: Hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, and and you know, specifically for for Native people, um, I think it's important. You know, first to keep in mind uh, when we talk about about these sort of larger conceptual things that, you know, Native Americans aren't a homogenous group. Um, There are 567 federally recognized tribes. Each have their own traditions, their own worldviews, its own understanding about property, and and that includes uh, land, land ownership, and and concepts around that. Um, But that being said, by and large, most tribes traditionally have viewed land as something that, that can't be owned, right? Um, certainly not owned by, by individual people in the same way that you know European concepts of, of land tenure evolved. Um, but, you know, I mean, and I think about these things <laughs> um, from a framework of, of, of law, right, and Indian law and uh, look at it sort of through that lens. And uh, so tribes as governments um, have controlled territory, right, since since time immemorial. And um, tribes make laws that govern people within those territories. And today we refer to those um, tribal territories often as, as Indian country. Um, that's a legal term of art. And one common form of that is an Indian reservation, and even before the formation of the United States, European governments had recognized that that there was no right to govern uh, within Indian country, um, and that's a legal rule that that became embedded in in U.S. Juris, jurisprudence. Really, in uh, Worcester versus Georgia, um, an important case um, came out in 1832. Um, so this this notion that European colonial governments and tribal governments could, could coexist governing their own territories on the same continent. That's, you know, some people referred to that as a, you know, as a measured separatism, right. Um, and that continued in large, large measure until the late 19th century when the federal government adopted a policy to, you know, quote break apart the Indian mass. Um, and, a key feature of that, a key feature of you know trying to dismantle and break apart tribal governments was allotment. So, I, I, and I really think that to understand this this concept of land ownership and how it evolved, um, allotment is really a key to that, and really informs, in you know how Indian lands are held today and and um, uh, how a lot of Indian law is viewed, frankly. What allotment did if you think about Indian reservations, um, if you you know just in your mind if you sort of visualize you know you know this this piece of tribal territory right? What allotment did was the federal government came in and instead of you know this 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 tribal territory being um, you know tribal lands that that um you know uh, that indian people occupied and used I, I wouldn't say exactly communally but but um something close to that the federal government said well we're gonna parcel out all of that all of that land on an indian reservation so kind of see all these little squares of you know, 120 or 160 acre parcels of land on a reservation. So, you know, individual Indians of that tribe or you know, families got individual parcels of land, and uh, so that was um, really a um, um, a big shift, right? And and how tribal lands were were thought about and held by Indian people. So once. All these individual allotments went to um, uh, those individual tribal citizens and families. Once everybody got one, um, all of the other parcels were declared to be surplus lands, right? And uh, then were opened up to to non-Indian settlement um, on on reservations and and typically so those those um, those plots of land, those parcels of land um, became alienated, held in, in fee title um, by non-Indians. And so, you know, that was, you know, conceptually a huge shift in how um, tribal lands were were thought about and, and dealt with. Um, and um, it was, you know, brought huge numbers of, of non-Indian people, um, into, uh, uh, into Indian country. Um, and, you know, importantly that, you know, something like 90 million acres of Indian land went into non-Indian ownership. That was about, you know, something close to two thirds of the tribal land base, um, at that time, um, in the U S. So, you know, conceptually a huge shift, but also just in terms of, you know who owned and occupied what um it was uh, a, a huge um shift as well um so this this idea of individual land ownership was really sort of foisted <laughs> upon tribes beginning with you know with these allotment policies and in, you know, in the 1880s um and um you know that really um, had a had a big impact on um, federal Indian policy. How federal Indian law was shaped um, from that from that point forward, and um, and also in terms of uh, tribal communities, um, it really did a lot to to, to reshape uh, tribal communities as well. Um, and I, I think that you know. Now, I mean, I guess I can sort of speak to, you know, I come from, from an by um, uh, and, um, you know, there's uh, now for, for a lot of people when you kind of talk about, I guess, contemporary times, there's, you know, there's a, um, a great deal of pride a lot of time if there's, you know, a person or a family that still owns their allotment uh, that their family got back in the back in the 1880s i mean that's a there's a lot of pride in that um and you know i know a few people that do my you know my family um by and large most most of our allotments went into non-indian ownership over time which you know which was kind of the the norm right and um um so i think that for for a lot of people today, if if they've managed to keep that you know that allotment in their family um, and still are able to live there or use it, um, there's uh, uh, a lot of a lot of pride in that because they you know in some way that was you know, that's a way of holding holding on to tribal land now. Um, so that you know it's um, I, I guess that's kind of a long <laughs> a long answer. Um, it, it, the you know, sort of this concept of land ownership and how it evolves. I mean, there's, um, you know, that's my, you know, my legal perspective on it. Um, uh, there's a lot of other ways to, to look at it as well, but, um, and, you know, there's books and books that are just written on that, on that question and explaining that. But, um, you know I think that that's you know going back that allotment policy and, and, and the impact of allotment is probably the most the most uh, significant thing to, to think about.
2: So what do we see happening with sacred lands and protection of that?
3: with, with sacred lands and um, you know, sometimes it, we um, all sort of referring to the to the same thing um, this has been, critical issue for for tribes um, since, you know, displacement and um, uh, land loss really began. Um, And it's important to understand that for a lot of traditional Native religion, you know, certain ceremonies and practices can only occur in specific locations. That's one aspect of this, right? Um, and so, if practitioners can't access those locations, those sacred places or sacred sites, um, or if those places are, are damaged or destroyed, um, then those sacred practices are, are destroyed as well. Right? Um, They—if um, they can only be practiced in that spot, in that spot, you can't get access to it, or it's somehow destroyed, then you can't do the practice. So what sort of happened is that, uh, you know, there's this issue that, that many of these, these sacred places are on federal lands are, or in, um, on private lands now. Um, and so land use decisions and um, have, a, have a huge impact on that. Um, and like I say, uh, whether or not you can access um a, a particular site um is, is of large importance and there's um over over time there's been a number of uh, federal statutes that have been passed uh, um amendments to the Ameri- uh, American Indian Religious Freedom Act for example um that uh puts a, a policy in place um to um Provide access to, to sacred places on federal lands for Native Americans and um, other policies, agency policies with the with the Forest Service and Department of Interior that have increased protections um, and access for for sacred sites. Um, but it's it's not enough, and there's still um, a, a lot of things that happen. I mean, uh, that that imperil these places. Um, you know, one example that's um, um, pretty widely, I think, known about was the um, the Snowball case, um, the uh, Navajo Nation versus Forest Service case, and that had to do with um, a, uh, a concession, which was a, you know, um, uh, actually a ski resort on on Forest Service land that was uh, going to use um, sort of reprocessed uh, sewage effluent to Make snow on the on the ski slope, um, so desecrating the you know the sacred site um, that was there, and um, so things like uh, things like that are still occurring. Um, um, you know, there's um, uh, when these places are on um, you know federal lands and they're open to the public. Uh, there's often you know looting and things like that. Um, uh, people that do ceremonies may not be able to have the the kind of privacy uh, that's required. Um, road building is another one. Um, uh, a well-known case, Ling uh, uh, versus Northwest uh, uh, Cemetery Association, had to do with the building of a road through um, through a, a sacred site of cemetery. Um, so those those types of things are are still happening, and they're. Um, so, as much progress as there's been on, you know, with federal statutes and, and agency policies to increase protections, it just simply hasn't been enough um, and, and um, more needs to, uh, to happen uh, to, uh, to protect these places. And one of the, you know, when we're talking about what's happening right now, one of the really encouraging developments that's, that's come out of, um, Standing Rock suit's litigation over the Dakota Access Pipeline, which has been, you know, uh, uh, widely uh, reported in, in media outlets and, and gotten a lot of attention. But one of the, one of the things that's been an important development out of that is that uh, the United States is going to be engaging in formal consultation with tribes to more uh, closely examine uh, some of these issues um, uh, around. Sacred sites, and, and particularly um, how um, federal permits are issued, and um, uh, how to bring the, the, the consideration of impacts on native lands, native sacred sites into those uh, processes. Um, so that's uh, you know that's that's extraordinarily important that the U.S. is, is engaging in that um, and. You know, this is a uh, something that's needed to happen uh, for a long time. This type of consultation, you know, so that's it's an important step. But it's it's vitally important that there are, in fact, new policies and and perhaps legislation that that come comes out of that out of that consultation process. And in order for that to happen, you know, because we're <laughs> Um, we're in an election season now, um, we're going to have a new president, um, uh, come January and, and this consultation process won't, won't be done by then. So that the new president really has to carry this forward as a, as a priority, uh, in their administration.
2: And so when we talk about, um, land reservation, what kind of issues do we see there currently?
3: With Indian reservations, yes. You know, there's uh, a a number of, of issues that uh, that come up around around that. I, um, one of them is you know going back to allotment and uh, the alienation of of Indian lands. Um, and this, you know, the fact that there are a lot of non-natives that have uh, parcels of land held in fee title uh, within the boundaries of Indian reservations brings up uh, some some pretty significant um, issues around around tribal governance. And when, um, when we talk about that situation of when you look at an Indian reservation, you've got all these you know parcels of non-Indian lands, non-Indian fee lands, and then Uh, individual uh, Indian allotments we call that checkerboarding right because if you were to take all those squares that I described um, on a map and you were to color code them (laughs) according to land ownership it would you know look look like a checkerboard you'd have all these different colored squares on there and so um, you know I'd mentioned the, the Worcester versus Georgia case that goes back to the 1830s and you know that has within it this um, this presumption that um, that tribes um, govern um, within their own territories and uh, and that that presumption of, of tribal governance still carries forward today. Um, but um, you know I'd mentioned that that allotment you know has had this significant impact on the way that um, judges think about Indian law and foundational principles of Indian law and tribal governance, and one of them is that um, there's been a, a, a trend in, in recent decades uh, when these issues around, you know, who, you know, what governmental authority has authority over a particular parcel of land, um, these these non-Indian fee have, have been. Um, particularly uh, contentious, uh, litigious <laughs> um, uh, issue, topic um, in, in Indian law over the, the past few decades. And so courts have really uh, been over backwards and um, uh, to undermine, in many instances, um, tribal governmental authority on non-Indian freelance uh, within the reservation uh, particularly where they're occupied by non-Indians and and so that's, um has been you know it's, a, it's been this trend for a few decades now and, and is, um continues to loom out there as, as a um, as a particularly difficult threat um, I think for, for tribal governance um, uh, within, their, within their reservations, within their territory. So, I mean, that's just, you know, there's all kinds of issues um, that come up around Indian, Indian reservations, but I, I think that, um, you know, these questions about, about tribal governance and which governmental authorities um, have a governing power. Um, within an Indian reservation is is one of the most um, uh, significant uh, that's in some ways kind of unresolved um, in, in certain ways right now.
2: And so, how do we see displacement still playing out for Indigenous communities?
3: One way is, and, and I hadn't really talked about this too much before, but there's a there's a you know there's a, an economic development aspect. Um, to all of this, also when you think about, you know, non-Indian fee lands um, on Indian reservations create, um, you know, if you look at it, you know, sort of nationwide, are creating uh, billions of dollars in revenue, um, and that could be from ranching or from you know agriculture, or, you know, other things. Oftentimes, that money is not. Staying in, within Indian communities, um, and so that's that's one one aspect of all this. That I think that's um, important to important to keep in mind. You know, and and another one is that you know when you talk about displacement, there was you know also this this period in the 1950s. Um, you know, a lot of times we think of, um, you know, the removal period, right? From um, from you know around the 1830s or so, where a lot of tribes were um, relocated from their Aboriginal territories um, to to other reservations. So, so for example, you know, most uh, probably the most famous one is uh, the Trail of Tears. Um, uh, where the uh, Cherokees were relocated from the southeastern U.S. to uh, the Indian Territory. Uh, but there were a lot of other tribes that, that ex- had similar experiences to that. And um, so, we, you know, when we think about relocation we, we, um, or displacement, we think about that often. But there was also, in the 1950s, this, this federal policy of, of relocation as well. And, you know, that came about as um, you know the way that it was couched at the time was that there were these um, you know severe economic problems in Indian country and there are a lot of causes for that right I just described one where where um, you have non-indian people uh, um, creating a lot of revenue on on lands within Indian territories and, and it not staying there but at any rate, um, uh, you know, there were these severe economic problems in Indian country in the 1950s that were being recognized, and the federal government said, "Well, you know, the way that we are going to try to fix that is to give people incentives to um, leave the reservation, go into to urban areas." You know, so you had you know these these sort of urban centers in the in the U.S. where you just had a lot of Indian people coming in, like in Denver and San Francisco and um, Minneapolis and other places. And so that was, uh, you know, that was this other period of, of displacement um, that, that occurred. And, and um, so that had an, an impact back home, right? Because, you know, the people that were leaving were, you know, young people uh, and people with families. Uh, sort of the in some ways the, the youngest healthiest most capable um, were sort of leaving and going into urban areas and so um, that took away an important um, cultural and, and human resource from the um, you know a lot of Indian reservations and then also for the people that were uh, moving in moving into urban areas you know they they didn't uh, all, they weren't always able to maintain cultural and familial ties um, back home with their, with their tribes. Um, it was you know, often pretty difficult to do that. Then, you know, so after that, you, you, uh, you can see that, you know, succeeding generations uh, of people then that were growing up in urban areas uh, away from their tribes. And, you know, and, and in some of these places, Um, there were really vibrant Indian centers that, that, um, that came about, um, San Francisco is one of those places and, and, you know, um, these sort of, um, uh, and and sometimes more of a, like a pan Indian type of, of identity, um, sometimes, um, you know, comes about with that. Um, so it, it, it does, you know, that, that reshapes um uh, a lot of those uh relationships for people and and actually i would say that you know really great um in wilma mankiller's book which is called mankiller um she writes a lot about you know her family um uh, was part of the relocation program left cherokee nation in the in the 50s to go to to san francisco and then she returned back there Uh, I guess that was in the late 70s or early 80s when she came back home. Um, But she writes a lot about her experiences being away and what it was like coming back um, for her. And and so for people that are interested in sort of that firsthand account, I would definitely recommend reading that book. And of course, she eventually became the first um, uh, female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. Um, an important figure, but um, it's a it's a very compelling account um, that kind of goes to and talks about some of these some of these issues around that, that relocation that I'm talking about.
2: So clearly, there's a lot of issues surrounding uh, colonization. Is there anything else you'd like to give to our listeners to think on?
3: There are, um, you know, a whole host of issues that are. Um, you know, ongoing, and, and one of the things I, you know, I appreciate about, um, you know, uh, your, you know, your thinking in this area and, and, and your efforts and your invitation to me to come speak about this is, you know, the, you know, the recognition that, you mm-hmm. know, that this, yeah, there's, there are historic aspects of, uh, of, of these issues, but, you um, it's also happening right now that these are uh, contemporary issues. You know, it's, um, sometimes I say to people, you know, this isn't just part of a history course. It's part of a civics course, right? Um, and, uh, you know, the um, I would really um, recommend to people that, um, you know, there, it's sometimes hard to, because... It, these things don't always get a lot of attention in the media. It's one of the things that's been great about the movement right now with the Dakota Access pipeline is that it's really lifted up a lot of this stuff and, and put it front and center in mainstream media outlets, which is, you know, which is great and it's gotten I think a lot of people thinking about some of these issues, but um, you know, there uh, I would just really encourage people um, to, to continually stay informed um, and there's um, uh, you know there are resources out there um, you can look at indians.com um, as Indians with a Z um, that um, you know uh, is a I guess like uh, what would you call it like an aggregator that, you know it's a website that gives you a lot of um, stories for the day um, uh, from Indian country um, and just uh, to, to stay tuned in um, with these things, even you know, even as some of the you know the you know big news stories might you know eventually fade away at some point, um, you know, keep up with it and keep it and uh, keep it in the front of your mind.
2: Thank you so much. This gave our listeners some great resources, some great food for thought. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Joel.
3: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for inviting me.
2: So Joel, in the last few weeks that we originally spoke, there's been a major development. Could you share a little bit about that?
3: Oh, sure. Um, so, uh, yesterday, uh, December 5th, um, the Corps of Engineers uh, issued a statement um, saying that uh, the Corps wasn't going to approve an easement uh, under the lake, which, um, since that's Since that land um, is owned by the United States, the Corps of Engineers, um, uh, Dakota Access Pipeline can't pass through there unless um, the United States grants uh, the pipeline company an easement. Um, And so the uh, decision uh, was announced yesterday that the Corps of Engineers uh, wouldn't grant the easement at this time. And um, what they're... Saying is that um, uh, that there needs to be more time uh, for a more thorough uh, review process, uh, particularly given uh, uh, the environmental concerns uh, that have been raised by the tribe uh, regarding potential for for water pollution uh, in the in the drinking water that they use, and also that um, that it implicates uh, treaty rights of the tribe. Um so and what the what was suggested in their announcement is that uh the way that that more robust review uh could be undertaken would be through a full environmental impact statement. Um so um up to this point um what the Corps of Engineers has is utilizes what's referred to as an environmental assessment. Um and under the National Environmental Policy Act, um, there's sort of two different ways that a government agency can undertake the uh, the review of, of environmental impacts, and sort of the the initial one is the environmental assessment. Um, and then, if if it's concluded that uh, that a particular project or a particular decision decision by the agency will um, will have some in, in, uh, some effects on the, in the on the environment. Then they do this fuller, more robust environmental impact statement, and it's um, 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 like a, a much more thorough um, uh, study uh, that's undertaken. Um, and the agency has to look at ways to to mitigate or avoid impacts uh, that may be caused uh, by. Say for example, granting easement to a to a pipeline company. Um, so, and, and typically, that's a you know that's a, a longer, more thorough process um, than just the in, initial env- environmental assessment. And it's, it's a little un, unclear to me at this point. Typically, it, well, it's not unusual um, for um, other types of mandatory reviews. Um, like uh, uh, reviews for historic preservation purposes and uh, things like that to be rolled into the environmental impact statement. I'm going to be one document. It's not clear to me at this point sort of how how that'll be approached and and handled. Um, So, you know, certainly um, um, a a good uh, result uh, at this juncture. Um, for, you know, that's been one of the concerns all along, you know, that, uh, that the government uh, had moved forward and, and made these types of decisions without thoroughly considering uh, the impacts on the tribes, uh, the, the tribes' treaty rights um, and uh, uh, religious rights as it, as it relates to, to sacred places, and that all of that had not been thoroughly evaluated and considered uh, before undertaking uh, these types of decisions. So certainly, you know, a good, a good outcome. Um, I, you know, personally, I'm, um, you know, I'm, have some, um, you know, some, some cautions uh, there. Uh, I don't think that this is necessarily a, a done deal, you know, for for a few reasons. Uh, one is that, you know, this is, uh, you know, they describe this as a more thorough, more robust review, and we just simply don't know what, what the outcome of, of that will be. Um, um, it's not, you know, I think a foregone conclusion. Um, and, you know, there's also uh, this another uh, political uh, dynamic to it as well. You know, as I said, this is you know, typically these types of reviews uh, take a little while, and we're um, just a few weeks away now from from having another president and a new administration. Um, you know, who, and President-elect Trump has already, you know, made statements that he's you know, supportive of the pipeline, and so we don't know um, sort of what their policy viewpoint might be, and and. How they may or may not move in some other uh, direction. So that's that's another unknown. So um, certainly a, a very positive uh, development, a very good step uh, that's that's happened here. Um, but you know there there is a little bit uh, in this instance, I think a little bit of a of a wait and see. You know we'll have to sort of see what the results of some of these things are uh, that are in play. And in, in, in then, you know, the other thing I would say too is that, um, uh, you know, part of the reason I think that that uh, so many tribes, not just in the United States, have, have responded to this, and um, I mean, indigenous people from all over the world, in fact, have responded, have gone out to Standing Rock, and and. Uh, supported uh, this in, in other ways is because uh, it's a very uh, unfortunately common experience that that uh, that infrastructure projects like this um, are moved forward or approved without uh, uh, an adequate consultation with the tribe, um, without a thorough review process. Uh, without an adequate um, assessment and consideration of how a project like this will impact the tribes' lands, treaty rights, water, um, religious rights, sacred places, um, burial grounds, sacred objects. Um, Unfortunately, you know, it's it's somewhat commonplace um, that these types of things happen. Um, and frankly, the, the United States doesn't have a very good record of, um, of engaging in, in, um, adequate consultation with tribes on these types of things. So, um, it, the, uh, you know, the Trump administration has said that they want to have, um, move forward on, on a lot of infrastructure projects. Not necessarily a bad thing. There's a lot of infrastructure needs out there in Indian country. Um, I think we talked a little bit about, before about you know water and that tribes um, own a lot of water but don't have the infrastructure to oftentimes to get potable water to their people. You know, there's a lot of homes out there without running water, so there's an infrastructure need. Um, but uh, there's also this this need for for consultation in the uh in the process um and for um uh, for the united states to to engage appropriately with tribes um uh, so you know that's i think an issue that's that's still out there you know this uh i think that uh it's been highlighted uh, with the events of the last few months but um, you know we're not at the point where we've resolved that um, um, I think that there's some other important steps that that need to be taken here
2: well yeah, thank you so much for the update and of course, your opinion is super uh well valued and it's really good to hear this type of analysis as well
3: well great yeah i'm I'm happy to have the discussion with you and and uh, uh really glad that uh, uh that you all are or uh, following this issue closely. really, really appreciate it.
0: So what did you think of those wonderful comments? I know we have mentioned the commandments in Exodus 20 where God instructs people not to desire or take the home of or anything that belongs to one's neighbor. It would seem that that applies here. The story of American settlers and United States law regarding land ownership and Native rights is convoluted in one sense and yet very simple in another. Isn't it obvious that we found ways to own the large stretches of lands that seemed open to settlers who didn't have the same concept of land as native tribes did? When I was in Pine Ridge on the reservation years ago, being from the east, I was surprised at the large expanses of land. We were staying right outside town, and yet we were over 30 minutes from the next settled area. Yet now that I know just a little more about the tribal ways and how the land was used, I realize that one doesn't need to be in one spot of land every minute in order to need it, especially when we're talking about sacred land. And if we really think about conservation and land use, the ways that the tribes have used the land and understood that it could not be owned makes more sense than much of our use and abuse of land and our history shows. How did you feel about the Standing Rock decision? Do you think it will hold? Could an environmental impact study actually allow the pipeline to go forward? I understand it's over 90% built. It would seem that this issue is only settled for the short term. And if we've learned anything from this history, we've learned that we need to begin thinking in the long term. I invite you to explore the story deeper. Look at the pictures of Standing Rock, and a quick Google will give you many. Search Twitter for comments, and then I invite you to write your representatives in Congress to express your opinion. It was public opinion that ultimately impacted Standing Rock. And your opinion matters. Use your voice. Even more, make a phone call. It's amazing how effective a handwritten letter or a phone call is in Congress. That's our challenge for this episode, Dunker Punks. Make your voice heard. And let us know what you did. You are blessed and you are loved by your Creator. So go and be a blessing to those who need you most. Until next time, this is Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald. The Dunker Punks podcast consists of a dozen contributors who make their voices and those of others heard for you through interviews and discussions in the podcast medium. I'm Nancy Fitzgerald, pastor of the Arlington Church of the Brethren, and I co-host with Suzanne Lay, who produces the show. Our music is written and performed by Jacob Krause, who edited the audio this week. We thank the Church of the Brethren Office of Public Witness and Director Nate Hostler for this episode, and Emmy Goring of Brethren Volunteer Service, who is working there this year. Our next few episodes will feature Josh Brockway, Kevin Schatz, and Sarah Minnick. Stay tuned to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or at the website, ArlingtonCob.org/DPP. And reach us on social media at Dunker Pot.
1: Take a listen for the Dunker Punks. Oh, oh for the Dunker Punks. Yeah, they're yeah, oh, cool.
0: That's a cool group. What's up, Dunker Punks?
3: What does it even mean to be a Dunker Punk?
0: What does it mean to live out Jesus' calling in a changing world? Dunkerpunks. Make
1: their communities look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven. Dunkerpunks.
0: Figure out a way to hold on to the hope that another way is possible.
1: Dunkerpunks. love
0: everyone, even our enemies. Dunker punks. We're nonviolent, nonconformist Anabaptists sharing audio accounts of following Jesus to God's revolutionary reality. We seek truth to spread love and stand up for the marginalized. I'm your host, Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald. Hello, my name is Kevin Schatz. Dana Cassell here. Hey, this is Sarah Olaminnik.
1: I'm Dylan. Hello, I'm Nathan Hustler. Hey, this is Emmett Eldred.
2: My name is Laura Weimer. Hello, I'm Amy Gehring.
1: I'm Jonathan Stauffer.
2: I'm Suzanne.
1: Josh Brockaway.
2: Hi, friends. Elizabeth Allery Swenson here. My name is Noemi Flores.
1: Hello, my name is Jacob Kraus, and you're listening to Dunker Punks Podcast.
2: skidda bap bap whip do yeah. With support
0: from Arlington Church of the Brethren
2: On Earth Peace
0: Office of Public Witness Dunker Fox Committed to Jesus' radical, anti-empire love in our own world
1: Disciples of Christ Putting the words of Jesus, especially the words that we read in the Sermon on the Mount, into action every day Hey Jacob! Countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving, organic gardener Like what you hear?
2: Consider making a donation at ArlingtonClb.org slash DP Donor.
0: We were talking about Dunker Punks. They were uh-huh. they were very excited about Dunker Punks.
3: Dunker Punks for Life. See you next time.